As we look at Colossians, I've entitled this Created by Him and for Him. Our text, Paul read for us earlier, and we'll get to it, but I want to do the, uh, the first 14 verses also. But let me give you a little background. First of all, I want to put where Colossae is on the screen, a map of that part of the world, which would be today modern-day Turkey. And um, the red spot there is where Colossae is. Uh, the, auth- the author of uh, this epistle is the Apostle Paul, as stated in Colossians 1, verse 1. Uh, the epistle to the Colossians is one of the prison epistles, which are so-called because they were written by Paul while he was in prison in Rome. Uh, the prison epistles include Ephesians, Philippians, um, Colossians, and then the very personal epistle to Philemon. The year is about 62 AD, and four messengers left Rome unobserved. They each carried a very valuable document. Tychicus um, was served, uh, but they by carrying the epistle to the Ephesians, to Ephesus, where he was the pastor and the leader of the church. Ephrodites was carrying the epistle to the Philippians, as he was the pastor in Philippi. Ephoras was carrying the epistle to the Colossians. Apparently, he was the leader of the church in Colossae. Onesimus was carrying the epistle to Philemon. Now, Philemon was his master, and Onesimus evidently was his slave who ran away and got saved, and Paul says, you need to go home. And so Philemon was his master, and Onesimus, who had run away, was returning to him. Uh, These four companion epistles, and together have been called the anatomy of Christianity or the anatomy of the church. We can see that the subject of these epistles cover all aspects of the Christian faith. Ephesians is about the body of believers called the church, of which Christ is a head. Colossians directs our attention to the head of the body who is Christ. The body itself is secondary. Christ is the theme. He is the center of the circle around which all Christian living revolves. Colossians emphasizes um, the fullness of God in Christ. So with that much of an introduction, let's go back to verse one. Paul never visited uh, the Colossians, but he is writing to them. And let's look at the first eight verses here, which is basically Paul greeting them, typical greeting by Paul where he says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Timothy, our brother. Uh, To the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are in Colossae, grace to you and peace from God, our Father, and our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, This is very, very typical introduction by Paul to any of the letters that he would have written. And then he goes on and just uh, gives a personal gratefulness for the church that is there. So in verses three through eight we read, uh, we give thanks to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of your love for all the saints because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven of which you heard before the word of truth of the gospel, which has come to you as it has also come in all the world and is bringing forth fruit, as it is also among you since the day you heard and knew the grace of God and truth. As you also learn from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, who has declared to us your love in the Spirit. So he's basically giving thanks for them, letting know that he's praying for them, And um, in verses 9 through 14, Paul is 
praying specifically for this individual church. For this reason, we also, since the day we heard it, we do not cease to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and in wisdom and spirit of understanding. I guess if I would liken this to any of you that have never been to Carne Haiti, um, they're a part of our fellowship, and you may never have been there. And yet, um, um, we pray for them all the time. And what the Lord is doing there, taking it from nothing to what it is today, and as we pray, the Lord answers a prayer and is providing wonderfully for them. I would liken that very much to Paul's prayer for the church in Colossae. He's never been there. He's heard what's going on. And so he's just telling them, look, we're glad you guys accepted the Lord. Church is growing. And we just want you to know, even though we've never been there, that we love you guys and we're praying for you. Verse 10 that you may have a walk worthy of every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, uh, strengthened with all might according to his glorious power for all patience and long-suffering with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and translated us into the kingdom of the son of his love. I like that term, the son of his love, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. So Paul's introduction that leads us up to our text this morning that I specifically picked out for a reason, and I'll get to that reason in a little bit. Um, Let's look at just verse 15, where Paul now is speaking to the Colossians of the preeminence of Christ. Uh, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Here, we read he is the image of the invisible God. Image in the Greek is... um, Econ, and the question is, how could he be an image of the invisible God? You can't take a photograph or an image of what is invisible. How could he be that? Well, John makes that clear in his introduction in the Gospel of John. We'll be going there a couple times this morning. In the beginning was the Word. In the beginning, that has no beginning. Christ has no beginning. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God, John 1, verse 1. And then John says, in verse 14, and the Word was made flesh. If you want the Christmas story in John's Gospel, that's it. He was born flesh. That is the way that he became the image of the invisible God. How could he be that? Because he's God. If he were not God, he could not have been the image of the invisible God. So I call that um, 15A. Uh, 15B in this deals with the false doctrine that had penetrated the church in Colossae. It would not have been foreign to um, any of the churches but it was specially prevalent in Colossae. And uh, what it was, was Paul was dealing with the philosophy of that day and one of the mysterious religions, uh, it was called the Demiurge. And what that is, is a term, a false doctrine, that basically Demiurge is a, a smaller god than the one before it. What do you mean, Dwight? Well, it held that God created a creature just beneath him. And then that creature created a creature beneath him. Then that creature created a creature beneath him, and you just keep on going down until you get to the one that created the universe that now exists. 
these were emanciations or things that radiated from God. Um, Gnostics taught that Jesus was one of these creatures. That's what Gnosticism is all about. An emanation from God. And now Paul is answering that and he's going, no, 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 no. Not one God created another God, another God, another God. And you're a Mormon and someday you're going to be a God and have your own um, planet and island and so on and so forth. So that's crept into the church, sort of like Mormonism. Now Paul's answering that, no. He says that Jesus Christ is the firstborn of all creation. He is back of all creation. The Greek word is phototokos, meaning before all creation. He was not born in creation. He was the one who came down over 1900 years ago, became flesh. He existed before any creation. In the beginning was the word, and the word was God, and the word is God. The same was in the beginning with God. So we have a picture of the Trinity here, coupling the Father and the Son together. We'll see that when we get to Genesis in just a bit. All things were created by him, and without him was not anything made that was made that was made. God the Father is the everlasting Father. God the Son is the everlasting Son. There was never a time when Christ was begotten. All right, so as he's taking his first steps to talking to this church in Colossae, he's got to deal with the false doctrine that they'd always been a part of. And their understanding was that there's many gods, one right under the other, and um, eventually the universe was created. And Paul's saying, no, that's not it at all. There is only one God. Uh, One God, uh, three persons, and one God. We call it the Trinity. And so he's starting out right from the get-go exposing false doctrine and laying down absolute truth. Good place for an amen. So you're tracking with me thus far. Okay, let's go to verse 16. For by him all things were created that are in heaven, that are in the earth, whether visible or invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, All things were created through him and for him. Thus the title of our message this morning. Now in verse 16, by him all things were created. If all things were created by him, that clears up the question of his um, being a creature or the creator. The statement is that he is the firstborn of all creation does not mean that he was created, but rather he is the one who did the creating. There are two kinds of creation, the visible and the invisible. It is very interesting here to note that he mentions different graduations of rank in spiritual intelligence, thrones, dominions, principalities, power, There are graduations in the angelic hosts. Now we've gone into the invisible where we read in other verses of scripture that tells us that there's seraphim, there's cherubim, there's the archangels, there are the four living beasts that are around the throne who continually say holy, holy, holy. And um, these are... And then they have just uh, the tens and tens of thousands of thousands of angels uh, that don't have the rank of a cherubim or an archangel. And so um, everybody here know that you have a guardian angel. Um, those who have been given eternal life, uh, you have, the scripture says, a, a guardian angel. I wondered quite a few times where mine was when I was getting into some sort of trouble. He wasn't showing up. But what does the Lord say? I'll never leave you or forsake you. Yeah, but Lord, I'm in the fire. Well, so was Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But he was in there with him. Nothing scorched them. And the only thing that was burned off were the bonds that had them tied up. They came out not smelling smoky at all. And they were set free. 
So a great analogy there of why we go through trials. It's a purifying factor. Um, but don't think that the Lord has ever left you. You can't lie. It says, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. And besides that, you have your own guardian angel. Remember when uh, Peter got out of jail and they were praying for him, they were having a prayer meeting? And um, Peter goes to the house where they're having a prayer meeting for him to get out of jail. And um, the gal at the door said, um, it must be his angel. <laughs> Boy, they had a lot of faith in that prayer meeting. <laughs> and uh, she was making the equivalent that his angel was sounded like him or looked like him or whatever. I don't know. But here, um, in verse 16, that he identifies the visible and the invisible. In Ephesians, uh, uh, we note the fact that our enemy is a spiritual enemy. Satan has a spiritual host that rebelled with him. So there are different graduations of ranks among spiritual enmities. If you're taking notes, you might want to write down Daniel chapter 10, where we have one of these angels intercepting a message, the prince of Persia, demonic. It was holding up a very important message and wasn't able to deliver this message because this um, angel of Persia was more powerful than the messenger until Michael the archangel shows up and he says, excuse me, I have a little bit higher rank than you do, get out of the way. And as a result, the message was passed on and that's in Daniel chapter 10, um, if you want to look at that. One of the most wonderful truth, truths in this connection is that we are told that we are heirs of God and joint heirs with the Lord Jesus. So, who are we? Well, we are the bride of Christ. Jesus is the groom, and we, the church, are the bride. That's who we are. Now, let's read 17 and 18. We're created for him for the purpose of us being the church and him being the bridegroom. 17 and 18 clearly lays out, and he is before all things, and in him all things consist. He is the head of the body, the church, who is in the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. There's not a God under a God under a God under a God. No, there's one God. And that he might be preeminent over any of these false teachings or gods. In other words, if I would sum it up, he created everything. And by him, they were all created which takes us this morning to where I want to go. I'm going to have you turn to, to uh, Genesis uh, chapter 1, the very first verse of the Bible. I'm going to have you turn there. Genesis 1, uh, the first five verses. I'll read it and come back to them. Uh, in the beginning is, the next word is Elohim. It actually should read God's. El. Uh, for God is singular, Elohim is plural. So we're reading in the beginning gods. uh, I thought you just said there was just one. I did, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. If you look down at verse 26, then God said, let us, plural, make man in our image. So in Genesis one, we have this Elohim, the Father and the Son, and the Spirit of God brooding over the oceans at the time. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We're going to spend all of our morning on Genesis chapter 1 and John chapter 1. But let's read the first five verses. The earth was without form and void, and the darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God, now you have the third part of the Trinity, was hoovering over the face of the waters. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light, that it was good. And God divided the light from darkness. 
and God called the light day and the darkness he called night. So the evening and the morning were the first day. We have a literal first day where God created the heavens and the the earth all in one day, the first day. Okay, where we're going this morning, and on the sixth day, we just read it, verse 26, God created man. And this morning I want to address two false doctrines. That every university in America, every public school, grade school, guess what? They're not gonna be teaching that God created the heavens and the earth in six days. What are they gonna teach? They're gonna teach evolution. And um, I would say at least 90%, there's people watching right now that are having trouble reconciling the Bible with evolution. I'll get to that because the two subjects I wanna take head on this morning is evolution and the Big Bang and the gap theory, those two events. One is secular, one is Christian. And I'll spend most of my time talking about evolution. Um, Of course, you've heard of Charles Darwin's book, The Origin of Species. And that man actually evolved after the Big Bang. How long ago was that? Well, it was 20 billion years ago. Well, how do you know that? Well, we just know. And, um, um, And then man evolved after the Big Bang and I always laugh when I read it because the Big Bang Theory is funny to me. You see, first, there was nothing. And then it exploded. Now, if you don't find that funny, I don't know what's funny. First, there was nothing, and then it exploded. And it shot out and over millions and millions and millions, and Carl Sagan, billions and billions and billions of years, that eventually... We evolved, and from a rock to um, creatures in the sea that developed, eventually um, a monkey came along, and um, then a man. So you came, that's what they're teaching in our universities today in public schools. This is how it all happened. You're not gonna hear this, that you were created all things were created in one 24-hour period. So, and man evolved from being a monkey into a man over millions and billions of years of time. Well, this goes contrary to the book that you hold in your hand this morning. And you have to ask yourself the honest question. Do you believe that all scripture is given by inspiration of God? That is profitable for doctrine, correction, instruction. That's what it tells us. But we're just in the first verse here of Genesis 1 and said, Dwight, is that all you got to go on? And the answer to that is no, because if you, if God's word says this is a young earth and God created it in 620, literally six 24-hour literal days over that period of time, just flip over to Genesis chapter 20 and we'll be coming back to there, but in Genesis 20 we have um, the commandments, and if you look at verse 11, it says, for in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day, therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day, and he hallowed it. The Bible clearly teaches that this earth that we live in is a young earth, It is roughly 6,000 years old, and it's clearly what the scripture teaches. Let's go back to Genesis 1, and we're just gonna look at this one verse. What I'm gonna do this morning is prove to you beyond any mathematical probability that Genesis 1.1 and John 1.1 is exactly what it says. And as we begin this morning, we read, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis 1, verse 1. You may notice that there are some numbers that show up again and again in the Bible. 
The number seven, for instance, is found throughout the Bible and is widely recognized the Sabbath on the seventh day, uh, the seven years of plenty um, during Joseph's time, the seven years of famine in Egypt, the seven feasts, the, the seven trumpets marching around Jericho, etc., etc. I've added to my notes here the seven letters to the seven churches uh, in the book of Revelation, about 96 A.D., where we have uh, seven seal judgments, seven trumpet judgments, and seven bowl judgments, and seven comes up again over and over. Now, unlike English, our language, our modern language, in the Hebrew, each letter in the Hebrew language and the Greek alphabet have a standard and fixed number of numeric value attached to it. I, the idea, the first 10 letters have the value of one through 10. And um, the next nine letters have a value of 20, then 30, and then go on up. But not only letters, but also words and complete sentences have a numeric value when these numbers are added together. I'm just gonna deal with Genesis 1, 1, and John 1, 1 this morning with what I've just told you. In other words, in the Hebrew, first of all, um, we find here that um, the first three words contain the subject. And um, in the Hebrew, with the numerical value attributed to those letters, you have 14, which is two times seven. Now, the odd numbers among the 14 sums to 42. Well, that's seven times three times two. Even numbers among the 14 sum to 98, that's seven times seven times two. The last four words containing the object also have 14, seven times two letters. The nouns have 14 letters, or seven times two. The middle word and the one before it are made up of seven letters. The middle word and the one after it are made up of seven letters. Words two and six are made up of three letters. The value of the first and last letters of all seven words equals 1,393, or seven times 199. The value of the first and last letters of the first and last words equal 497, or seven times 71. The value of the first and last letters of the first half of the verse is 42, or seven times three times two. The value of the first and last letters of the second half equal 91, or seven times 13. The value of the shortest word and only verb created equals 203, or seven times 29. The value of the last letters of the first and last words equal 490, or seven times seven times 10. The value of the first, middle, and last letters in the verb created equals 133, or seven times 19. The value of the first and last letter of each of the words in between equal 896, or seven times 128. The three leading vowels in the verse, God, heaven, and earth, have a numeric value of 777, or seven times three times 37. The numerical value of all words equal 2,701, or 37 times 73. Now this creates a very unique number, uh, the 37th hexagonal number and the 73rd triangular number. In other words, AKA the perfect number. Dwight, you're getting kind of lengthy here. Believe me, I'm only able to touch and skim the tip of the iceberg. Are you getting where I'm going with this a little bit? The very first verse of the Bible, Genesis 1-1, God sets the tone for the Bible code, 
hidden underlying numeric values that continue richly throughout both the Old and the New Testament. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, if you're Hebrew and you're reading Hebrew, they don't do it like we do. We read from right, uh, from left to right. Well, in Hebrew, you read from right to left. And the listing of the phenomenal features of sevens and three found in Genesis 1, there are seven words in the verse in the Hebrew, uh, nine, three times three, words when contractions in Hebrew are expanded, um, English language does not have that. Three words on either side of the middle word. Um, 28 letters, or seven times four. This also is the seventh triangular number, a.k.a. perfect number. And seven letters in each of the last four words. Dwight, where in the world are you getting all this stuff from? You're not that smart. <laughs> I'm not, but Dr. Ivan Pannon is. And the research that I'm presenting to you this morning was done by a mathematician from Russia. I strongly encourage you to get a Berean. All you have to do is Google his name. When I first read his article, Mathematical Proof of the Bible, I was so blown away that I made copies of it. And I sent it to every one of my friends. And I'm, again, just tipping the iceberg, but I want you to know where this information comes from. He's a mathematician. Of all the books of the Old and New Testament, Dr. Ivan Pannon, a former agnostic, spent 50 years writing 50,000 pages. Now let that sink in. Um, After identifying these structures... And it was his first discovery of this phenomenon that, that led to his conversion. Pannon was so well known as a firm agnostic that when he discarded his um, Gnosticism uh, as an agnostic, some say the word is translated ignoramus, <laughs> and accepted the Christian faith, the newspapers carried headlines telling of his conversion. I can't remember, but it was either Harvard or Yale that he went to. Did you guys know that Harvard was a seminary? That's how it started. Oh my goodness, how the times are changing. And now we have one of the most radical liberal colleges in the country. That's not how it started. It started as um, like Lawrence University. Um, A university that raised up Presbyterian pastors. That's what it was known for. My goodness, how the times have changed. Well, imagine spending 50 years after discovering the deeper he went, the deeper it got. And he spent the rest of his life, 50 years, writing 50,000 pages of this throughout the scriptures. And I'm gonna get into some of them. The probability that both occur by random chance in these textual related verses that I just mentioned is one in eight billion one hundred million. The chances of this happening by chance. One in eight billion one hundred, eight billion one hundred million. Skeptics have rightly, oh by the way, um, Pannon, after he put out his paper, to his colleagues and said, prove me wrong. And I'll give $100,000, we're turning, talking to turn of the century here, and 100,000 would be like a whole lot more today. And he said, I'll give $100,000 to any person that can prove me wrong. That money was never collected by anyone. I would just give it a shot for 100, 100 grand, you know? Um, Skeptics may rightly claim that these mathematical coincidences uh, should apply to any verse from the Bible and then the odds would be much higher. However, it has been known for a long time that Genesis 1-1 and John 1-1 
are intimately related, both textually and numerically, thereby strengthening the overall case for a mathematical design behind Genesis 1 and John chapter 1. For instance, Genesis 1 and John 1 are the only two verses in the Bible that begin with the phrase, in the beginning. Genesis 1.1 and John 1.1 are known as the two great creation verses of the Bible. And what is Paul writing to the Colossians about? They believe that there were different creators, different gods, so on and so forth. His argument, and the reason we're going down this rabbit trail this morning, is um, to show just how unbelievably accurate and in-depth these two verses are. And this was um, Paul's concern for the Colossians. Um, Genesis 1-1 and John 1 are known as the two great creation verses of the Bible. The first verse of the Bible, and then later, the first verse of the final gospel, John 1. John 1 through 118 is a gospel story, and it introduces Jesus as God incarnate word. Genesis 1, uh, 1 through chapter 2, verse 3, is the prologue to the whole Bible, and it introduces God as the creator of the world. The numerical value of all words in Genesis 1, 1, that are there, are 2,701, or 37 times 73. The numerical value of all words in John 1.1 1, 1 is 3,627, or 39 times 93. The Greek numerical value of all in capital letters, word, appearing three times in John 1, is 373. The list goes on and on and on and on. With this complementary link between the two verses, it's difficult to believe that one in eight billion coincidences of events could happen. One last incredible proof of God also hidden within the powerful statements of Genesis 1 can be found in Genesis 1 where when you read it backwards, read it backwards, Genesis 1.1 reveals that, behold my double, Moses, my double, shall I not multiply whom I did multiply? Hold on to that because we're going to be coming back to it. That's why you read it backwards. There are 27 letters used here. That is three times three times three. Note the intricate word positioning. The word my double is doubled and is turn parallel to the doubling of the word, I multiply with Moses, and whom is in the middle. In other words, the opening riddle alone is so complex that to suppose by random chance is simply absurd. And what's more is Genesis 1-1 read backwards also forms a word-by-word across she harnessed the sun. Only God could orchestrate something like that. In the beginning was the word, John 1.1. I'm gonna have you turn there at this time. Let's go to the Gospel of John. Genesis 1 begins the Bible. John 1 begins the, the last of the Gospels. How does it begin? Well, we read, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Once again, we have the plurality. If you look over at verse 14, we find that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And so we find here in the numerical value of just the first verse of John 1, verse 1, It would go like this. In the beginning, the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. 
This time, if you take the numerical value of each of the Greek letters, so now I've just gone from Hebrew Old Testament to Greek New Testament, which also has numerical values attributed to their letters. What you come up with is 888. Eight plus eight plus eight equals 24, or eight times three times 37 equals 888. And, but these are just two examples. The Bible appears to contain encoded within its simplistic creation story of Genesis a much more detailed and exhaustive account of how God created, also revealing Jesus Christ as co-creator, thus my double. See here for the meaning of these two riddles and further examples. Just the first seven words of the Hebrew Bible are all it takes to affirm that God is the creator within the exact verse which tells us the most important concept that God creates. What's Paul's concern for the church at Colossae? We need to get something straight here. That there wasn't different gods and gods, gods, and gods. We need to get something straight. Jesus was before creation. He is the one that created it all. And what we don't know, remember what David said when he started meditating about what we're talking about this morning? David put it this way. We're fearfully and wonderfully made. And for those of you, I'm gonna get to the gap theory in a second. Yeah, but Dwight, you don't really believe that, um, I mean, come on, that light has to travel like 20 billion light years to, to get to the earth. How do you explain that? Oh, that's easy. Uh, is anything too hard for God? That would be my question back to you. Do you know that in people's hearts, they look at a sunset, they believe in evolution, but they know there's so much, com- it's so complicated and so beautiful and so complex. The fact that I can look at you and we can interact and, and um, understand each other is... Um, Uh, an act of God's creation. People know that there is a God, according to Romans chapter one. It's not that they don't know. It says because of creation, they suppress the truth. Let that sink in. In other words, they know the truth, but they're suppressing the truth. Why? Well, I don't wanna be accountable to a God. I wanna live my life. I wanna do my thing. I don't want any God reigning or ruling over me. And so these things that we're talking about, David said, were fearfully and wonderfully made as he contemplated the complexity of um, his own being. I mean, David is my hero. And yet uh, he was an adulterer. He was a a murderer. He had Uriah killed. Uh, But he was a musician's musician. When Saul was troubled, hey, who's the best guitar player in town? Um, well, that would be David over in Bethlehem. Go get him. Saul's having a tough time. He needs to be comforted. But he was also a man's man. Saul has killed his thousands. But David, he's killed his tens of thousands. So he was known for what? Being a warrior? Being a musician? No, that's not what he was known for. He was known for a man after God's own heart. I want to know that God that can do stuff like this, that he has a face and I can interact with him. And David's heart was towards seeking after that truth. When you see the evidence and it's overwhelming, I'll just take it to one, I'm going to leave the scripture just for a second. Remember the fool has said in his heart there is no God. And that... um, um, Well, finally, in a research paper published by um, Icarus, a scientist, have noted that the number 37 crops up in other places. All right, let's leave the scriptures. The total molecule mass of the 20 amino acids equals 2,738, or 37, the perfect number, times 74. The total mass of the molecular core shared by all 20 amino acids is 74, or 37 times two. 
The sum of the atomic numbers of the different atoms found in DNA is 37, the perfect number. Of the 20 amino acids, 19 have 73 nucleus, you know, protons and neutrons. Uh, proline is the only amino acid out of the 20 that has 74. Well, that's 37 times two. Uh, nucleons, um, and there are a total of uh, 28 of these uh, condens, or created energy, um, three structural units within DNA which have a total automatic mass of 1,665, or 37 times three times three times five. Um, the scientists have a total of nine examples in their research paper published by Akars, where they stated that the chances of the number 37 appearing this many times by random in the genetic code is a staggering one to 10 trillion. The chances of that is one in 10 trillion. Hence, they attribute this phenomena to aliens. <laughs> they can't deny the facts, but it's got, it's got to be something other than human. So I have a website here, um, hhhexpress.com, news science, aliens created genetic code life DNA. What are they doing? They're suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. But this clearly demonstrates that the author of Genesis 1.1 is the same author of the human um, geome, God. God has purposely designed the number 37 into his spoken word, the Bible, and has created life, the genetic code, and the name of his son, Jesus Christ. Regardless of the significance of these numbers, there is clear evidence of design in a genetic code that we could not have by random chance. For example, the value of pi and E. Um, pi, 3.1416, with a lot of numbers after that. Another remarkable proof of God's from the numerical value of Genesis 1.1 along with John 1.1 is the discovery of the values of key mathematical uh, constants to a high degree of accuracy, um, Genesis 1.1. If you examine the numerical value of each of the Hebrew letters and the number of the words and apply them to this formula, you get 3.1416, which is pi, times 1017, that's the value of pi to the fourth decimal point. Now, um, what I just said, I realize that um, in our schools today, they aren't exactly teaching pi <laughs> squared and what it's just what it is. But the numerical value of all the words, 2,701, added to its reversal, the creation count of Genesis 1-1 to 2 Chapter 2 3 has exactly 1813 letters or 37 times 7 times 7. Note, the actual numerics were again compiled by Dr. Ivan Pannon. That's where all this has come for. Remember, he spent 50 years of his life, 50,000 pages, and simply the farther he dug, the deeper it got and more convincing it was. I'll begin to wrap up the numbers here. Some of you are real glad for that, I know that. But I wanna make a slam dunk case this morning. I said I was gonna prove it to you, right? Okay, believe it or not, this list is not exhaustive. Well, 50,000 pages, I guess not. Of the features of Genesis 1-1, in total there are 31 features of the number seven have been discovered in the first verse and 23 combinations of 37 in the words. In a total, that is more than 50 features. The odds of just 31 features of seven found in Genesis 1-1 is seven multiplied by itself 30 times, 
or 730, catch this, or one and 22 septillions. What is a septillion? Well, you have a billion, which is 10 to the ninth power. You have a trillion, which is 10 to the 12th power. You have a quadrillion, which is 10 to the 15th power. You have a quintillion, which is 10 to the 18th power. You have a sextillion, which is 10 to the 21st power. And then you have a septillion. That's what we're talking here, which is 10 to the 24th, which is 10 with 24 zeros after it. That's the mathematical probability of what we just went through this morning, of this being factual. And all you have to do is I challenge you this morning to find out just who Dr. Ivan Pannon was and what he dedicated his life to, going from an agnostic to a born-again believer. And nobody has been able, he took this back and challenged his colleagues at Harvard or Yale, whichever what it was. And, um, you know, my attitude is this. According to my Bible, I was created in the image of God. And I'm not going to let any evolutionist, no, they're not going to make a monkey out of me. (laughs) No way. The person you're looking at was made in the image of God, and so were you. And to say that I evolved over billions and billions and billions and billions of time, you know what amazes me? Completely away from my notes. That God has so much space to work in from here to here, from ear to ear, and yet in this much space, we have eight billion people living on this planet. And unless you are an identical twin, they all look different. They all have a different voice. You pick up the phone and you say hi to somebody. I talked to my good friend Joe Bell last night at Calvary Chapel Lafayette. We're talking about pre-trib conference down in Dallas. And I knew Joe's voice as soon as I began to talk to him. It's unique. Everybody has a unique voice. Everybody has a unique personality. They're all different. No two are the same. And what are the probability factors of that happening? Well, monkeys may all have the same personality, but we don't. We are unique in that aspect. I'm just going to touch on the gap theory. What is the gap theory? It goes like this. It's people who struggle with the idea that God created the heavens and the earth with six days. And so they came up with the gap theory. According to the gap theory, there's a very long gap between Genesis 1, verse 1, and Genesis 2. So you have Genesis 1, and then we have a world that existed during this gap was destroyed and God recreated in six days described in Genesis. But between Genesis 1 and Genesis verse 2, we have this huge gap of time. Now, why would people want to gravitate to something like that? Well, the idea fails uh, to destroy God's recreating it in six days. This idea fails because it lacks biblical support. And catch this, it puts death before sin when scriptures describe death as a consequence for sin. Are you following me? Uh, Russ Miller does a very good job of this. It also, uh, the brief overview shows that the gap theory is not biblical. It is, in fact, a compromise of the truth of Genesis, which rose when Christian leaders, I have people that I respect highly, and I know personally, that hold to the gap theory. And if I dropped names right now, I'd blow your mind. Uh, Who arose within Christian leaders when they tried to accommodate the millions of years claimed for the fossil records. And they say, well, you know, you just go out and look at the fossil records and carbon date them and so on and so forth. Go ahead and try. But then spend a week with Russ Miller. And he will prove to you scientifically, not biblically, that the layers of strata that make up our Earth's planet was laid down rapidly. And when you go to the highest mountains, you're gonna find shellfish, fossils of shellfish. Where? On mountains, way up high, Mount Everest. And the Bible says that the flood covered 
all the mountains on the earth. And some of those fish got caught up there, and they're still there. They're fossilized. But you have them at 18,000, 20,000 feet. Russ does an unbelievable job of showing the worldwide flood and how it created very quickly these different stratas or layers. And any of you that have been to the Grand Canyon, you can very clearly see the different stratas. So an unbeliever said, well, they obviously were formed over billions and billions of different layers over different layers of time. And Russ um, does a wonderful job by making this statement, you cannot put death before sin. And the idea here is sin didn't come until Adam and Eve sinned. There was no death before that. So that violates what the scripture teaches if you hold to the gap theory. Is everybody tracking with me? This is a big deal if you understand that you cannot have death, uh, that you have death before sin. And that's what actually happened in the gap theory. Well, all these people died. No, there wasn't sin yet. Man wasn't even created until the sixth day, and he didn't sin until chapter three of Genesis, and they, they sewed up fig leaves because they knew they were naked. And the first death that took place, God did himself because he killed an animal and he clothed Adam and Eve. And that's where sin came in, and that's where death happened. The next death would have been the death of Abel, Cain killed Abel. And we have sin entering the world at this point. Turn with me, if you would please, to the book of Romans chapter five. And we'll begin to wind this up. Romans five, verse 12. Therefore, just as through one man's sin, sin entered the world. Well, Adam and Eve sinned. They realized because of their sin, that they died. Well, Dwight, they didn't die. They were still walking around. They're having kids and so on and so forth. No, I believe they were clothed in light. I believe they had fellowship in a way that can't be described until death came in. Well, Adam lived 900 and some years old, but he still died, and so did Eve. And it says, through one man's sin, Adam, sin entered the world, and a death through sin, and thus death spread to all men. The deadliest disease in the world is not COVID, it's not AIDS. The deadliest disease in the world is death and sin. That is the deadliest disease. And if you're not born again, then you're you're still contagious. And you're still on a path that's gonna lead to your eventual eternal death. There is a heaven, there is a hell. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who was a type of him who is to come. I've always been intrigued with this verse. And I asked the question, how is an Adam a type of Jesus Christ? And the answer is simple. Adam loved Eve. She had eaten of the apple. And he says, honey, you look a whole lot different today. You see, when she sinned, Adam went into taking that apple knowing. Remember, it says the woman was deceived, not the man. Adam knew exactly what he was doing when he partook of that apple. Well, why would he do that? Because he loved her. And he couldn't bear the idea of not being without her. And so he partook too of his own free will. The woman was deceived. So how is Adam a type of Jesus? Jesus of his own free will died for me and you, his bride who he loves. He did it, he did not have to. He became man for that purpose to gather unto himself a bride. Uh, Why? He realized that he would have to become human. He would have to live a perfect life. And that then and only then uh, would he um, be able to pay the penalty and actually become death so that 
we would be with him. So it goes on to say, verse 15, but the free gift is not like the offense, but if by one man's offense many died, how much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to many. Notice it doesn't say all. Matter of fact, the Bible says narrow is the gate that leads to life and few there be that find it. But broad is the gate that leads to destruction and many will be who find that. Well, what does that mean? That means that real born again Christians are in a minority. There's people sitting here this morning that still believe aspects of evolution because they can't wrap it around their head that God actually did this in six days. They've been seduced by our system. Where I would say roughly 90%, I don't think I'm over-exaggerating too much, of the people that are in the United States of America would hold to at least some portion of evolution and rather than biblical Christianity. A very small group of people would be in that category. So the question is, if by one man's offense death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace, and this is really what Paul's trying to communicate to his first letter to the Colossians. Therefore, verse 18, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation, even so through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in the justification of life. In other words, the word justification, um, that's how God looks at you. Just as though you've never sinned. And that's how he looks at you this morning. When you accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you were justified. Just as though you've never sinned. You're a, you're a, a, a bride in a gorgeous gown in his eyes. These white garments. Then on, on the other hand, there are those, well, after the sect, Justification, then we have the sanctification. Well, what's that? And how does it differ from justification? Well, it's a daily process that we go through. Every day we learn a little bit more. Some of you have never heard of Dr. Ivan Patton before, and you never heard a Bible study with Dwight giving so many numbers out. But be a Berean. And um, the probability factors of that happening, come on. At some point, you go, "Ah, I give up. There's no way I can rationalize or explain away. I can only suppress it. The truth is there for anybody who's willing to search it out. So with that being said, we have the gap theory put between um, uh, Genesis 1 and verse 2. And... um, You can't put death before sin. So that destroys that doctrine that's out there today that many hold to. So I'm gonna close with this question. And the question, let let me put it this way. How many times have you heard people ask you or maybe you even ask yourself, who am I? What am I here for? What's this all about? Is there a reason for me being here? What's my reason for being here? Well, if you get nothing out of the Bible study this morning, I'll give it to you right now. You and I are here. What is my purpose in life? Well, you were made by him, and you were made for him. That is your reason for being. And as that, we have a glorious wedding day to look forward to. What bride doesn't look forward to her wedding day when she's married? with family and friends around. They grew up dreaming about that, their wedding day. So Colossians, when we get to 3.1, it says, if you're born again, if you're risen with Christ, then what does it tell us to do? Well, seek those things that are above and not the things that are of the earth. And what happens through the sanctification period is little by little, the Bible says we're being changed from glory to glory. And Paul the closer he got to the Lord, this is Apostle Paul, 
He calls himself the chiefest of sinners. And I go to Paul, I beg your pardon. I think I'm the chiefest of sinners. You see, like Isaiah, the closer you get to the Lord, the more you realize just how much of a sinner you really are. And you become more grateful for what he has done. You fall more in love with him. And you want to see him. I like the songs that Eric picked this morning that talked about we're his creation. We're created for what? To love him, to worship him, to give him all the glory. My closing question, have you received the gift? What happens when somebody gives you a gift? What can you do? Ah, let me give you 20 bucks, man, uh, for, for the gift. And so you just insulted me. I gave you a gift and you want to give me 20 bucks for it? No. The only thing you can do is say thank you. Attitude of gratitude. And Lord, what can I do for you? Uh, I just want you to keep the first commandment. Well, what's that one? Oh, to love me with all your heart, with all your strength, with all your might, with all your soul. That's what I want you to do. That's it. That's it. I'll sort of fill in the blanks as you go along and create divine appointments and do things that only I can do. Show you the wonders of Genesis 1 and John 1 and how incredibly complicated and complex the Bible is, much less our human bodies, all designed. And um, doesn't God say my ways are past finding out? You know, Ivan Pannon did his best for 50 years, but he's just scratching the tip of the iceberg. Someday he's gonna reveal to us, the Bible says, we will know as he is, he, as he is known. We'll be like him and we'll know what he knows. Boy, I'm looking forward to that one. But in closing, I hope this is a challenge for you that hold to any part of evolution. Know that it goes completely contrary to what the Bible clearly teaches that God made you and I, the heaven and the earth, things visible and invisible in a six-day, 24-hour period of time, period. Amen? Let's that up and we'll close with a word of prayer. Lord, I thank you for this rather different Bible study this morning as we dive into the book of Colossians. We stand humbly in awe, Lord, of your creation as David acknowledged that we're fearfully and wonderfully made and truly that you're um, your ways clearly are far beyond uh, finding out or figuring it out. But we thank you um, for men like Dr. Ivan Pannon who would dedicate his whole life to show us that there's a whole lot more in the wonders of your word. And we're humbled by it and we're grateful for it. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.